You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good to see all of y'all. My name is Matt Tolander. I'm the spiritual formation pastor here on staff at Midtown. Um, and to start off this morning, I wanted to talk to y'all about a baseball player. Is that all right? I mean, you don't really have a choice. I'm the guy with the microphone right now. So I want to talk to you about this baseball player, a very, a very, very good baseball player. How good? Very good. I'm about to tell you how good with numbers, okay? This guy... This guy played in the major leagues for 22 seasons. He finished his career with 2,700 hits. Now, 2,700 hits is a lot of hits, all right? It is more than Joe DiMaggio. It's more than Ted Williams. It's more than Mickey Mantle. He had a lifetime batting average of 289, had seven seasons over 300. He had 1,200 career RBI with three seasons over 100. He had 500 doubles. And uh, he played these 22 seasons in the major leagues between the years of 1969 and 1990, meaning that he played Major League Baseball in four decades. Very, very long career. Incredibly good player. This player's name is Bill Buckner. Raise your hand if you know who Bill Buckner is. Okay. Now, if if you know who Bill Buckner is, you don't know who he is because of anything I just talked about. You know who Bill Buckner is because of one singular moment in his career, and it's game six of the 1986 World Series. It's Red Sox, Mets, Boston leads the series three to two. They're playing in, uh, in New York at Shea Stadium, and it's the bottom of the 10th inning. Game was tied three to three at the end of nine, so they go to extras. Um, Boston pulls out ahead two runs in the top of the 10th, and they come out, they've got to close it out in the bottom. They can't do it. They give up two runs. They tie up the game. And so in this moment, it is the bottom of the 10th inning, 5-5, five to five, two outs, runner on second. Uh, Bill Buckner is playing first base for the Red Sox, and Mookie Wilson is at bat for the Mets, and he has a 3-2 count, and he hits a rolling or a bouncing grounder to Bill Buckner, a routine ground ball at first base. And all Buckner has to do is scoop up this ball and step on first, and Boston's still alive. They can come back and score more runs than the 11th. And what happens is that the ball goes between his legs and rolls down the foul line, and that runner from second base cruises casually into home. And the Mets walk off the Sox, and then the Mets go on to win the World Series in Game 7. Now, that moment is one of the most iconic sports blunders of all times, probably the most famous blunder in in baseball history. And what happened is that Bill Buckner became the punching bag for the city of Boston for the next 20 years. His whole career was defined by this moment. He was the butt of every joke. He was the scapegoat. He was living proof that the team had been cursed ever ever since they traded Babe Ruth away. Um, and he was the butt of all these jokes, all these, you know, all references and culture and stuff to Bill Buckner all have to do with this one moment of like horrifying, nightmarish failure 
when every eye was on him. And just for a second, imagine what it would be like to live like that. Imagine being famous, notorious even, for something that is like extremely and horrifyingly embarrassing, so much so that it eclipses all of your other accomplishments. And it's the only thing that people remember. How was Bill Buckner able to live with that? Well, you didn't find out until much later, but uh, Bill Buckner knew the Lord. And when he passed away in 2019, the, uh, his obituaries in the Associated Press, Washington Post, ESPN, all of them lead in the first line with the 1986 World Series blunder. Um, but yeah, so he went to be with the Lord in 2019. In interviews, he would talk about how he would have to lean into his faith to deal with the embarrassment and the, the sort of, you know, the blow to, to his ego and to his identity. In our scripture passage this morning, we are going to see that one of the, the characters in this story is at risk of being in a situation like that. They're at risk of being in a situation where they are, where they are the, you know, the object of like lifelong shame and uh, ridicule and reputation-defining humiliation. So I want you to, to have that sort of emotional weight loaded up as we read our teaching text for this morning. So please stand, if you would, if you're able, uh, for the reading of God's Word. And as we read it this morning, there are certain phrases, just to change it up, I'd like us to read aloud altogether, and they're highlighted in green on the screen. So go ahead and read those aloud with me, if you would. This is John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This is one of Jesus' greatest hits. This is one of the most well-known miracles. Um, even people who don't follow Jesus, who don't care much about Jesus, know uh, that, that the Gospel of John records him turning water into wine. Uh, but the miracle is not the point of the story. John doesn't call it a miracle, does he? In verse 11, he calls it a sign. A sign is different than a miracle. A miracle is a display of the overwhelming power, but a sign has meaning attached to it. A sign 
points to something. A sign is the miracle plus the meaning. And John says this is the first sign through which Jesus revealed his glory. So what on earth does that mean? What is this sign pointing to? That's the question that we need to answer this morning, and that's what we're going to explore. But first, you need to know about how ancient Jewish weddings work, all right? The way that ancient Jewish weddings work is that uh, if, a, if a man and woman, young man and woman, probably very young, probably adolescent age, you know, teenagers, um, they find someone who they want to marry, or the family finds someone who they like, you know, their son or their daughter to marry, um, the relationship is, is not always totally arranged by the parents, but it's always put together with a high degree of involvement from two families. Um, because these, the, you know, these are small, largely agrarian communities in Judea. Um, and so because of that, in the family unit, everyone has to work. Everyone has to care for the land. Everyone has to work the fields. Everyone has to contribute something. And so if a, if a young man is going to come and marry a young woman, that means one family is gaining a contributor and one family is losing a contributor. Um, and so because of all sorts of issues of reciprocity and honor and shame and those sorts of things, uh, these, uh, these marriages and these betrothals were done with a high degree of input from the parents. And it starts with the signing of a contract. Um, if the, if the, uh, the bride's family, um, under the mediatorship of her father, agrees... Uh, to have her be married to this groom, then they will sign a contract and that family will give the groom terms. They'll say, These, this is the stuff that we expect in return. So it can be reciprocal and commensurate because you are taking a producer out of our clan. Your clan is benefiting and our clan is, is you know, suffering from that. So how do we make it even? And so the, it starts with the signing of this contract and that's betrothal. And legally speaking, that's marriage. Uh, so they are married, but there's still stuff that has to happen for the marriage to be fully realized. The groom will then go and he will um, prepare a place at his family's house uh, for the bride to come and live with him. Uh, he may have to raise this money. He may have to acquire the resources that have been agreed upon in the contract. And then when he does that, he, he has a period of up to seven years to do this. And so that bride waits and waits for the groom to prepare a place and for the groom to raise the money and to pay the price agreed upon in the contract. Uh, but when the groom is ready, the groom comes back to the bride's house. He brings all of his friends. Um, he's alerted the father. The bride has all of her friends there. He comes and he takes the bride and they consummate the relationship. And after they do that, they come and they step outside the door where all of the friends are waiting and they announce to the friends that the relationship has been consummated. The terms of the contract have been fulfilled. The groom has been accepted by the bride and by her family. Um, and now the relationship has been consummated, and they have been made one in union. And now it is time to celebrate. And at that point, the groom and all of his friends and the bride and all of her friends would uh, go to have a big wedding feast. And this was the business of the whole community um, because the bonding together of families in small communities uh, makes communities stronger. And so that's what's going on in John chapter 2, uh, where it says in verse 1, on the third day a wedding took place in Cana. Now, third day is something that, that raises a flag, uh, because when we see third day in the scriptures, what do we associate that with? Resurrection. Okay, so is is this third day bit in verse 1, is that significant or is that of note? 
what does it refer to? Uh, and people have different opinions on this. Some people say, oh, well, well it's a, it is supposed to evoke the resurrection. But what's interesting is that John never mentions three days in connection with the resurrection in this gospel. He talks about the resurrection, but he doesn't mention the three days bit. So that doesn't necessarily make the most sense. Some people go out to the beginning of the book and they start counting the days. You know, it says, you know, in the next day this happened, and the next day this happened. And if you do that, you come down to where this is about the sixth or seventh day uh, in the Gospel of John, in the action that's taking place. So some people will say, oh, well, the sixth day is the day in creation when God makes Adam and Eve. It's the first marriage. And so this wedding is taking place, you know, on the, on the, on the sixth day of the Gospel of John. Some people come out with seven days in their calculation. They're like, oh, well, this is the Sabbath. This is the seven, seven is the perfection number. Um, what does this mean, the third day? Um, does it mean it's the third day of the wedding feast? Because these wedding feasts could go on for, you know, as long as a week. I think it's talking about the third day, the simple explanation, and this is what I think it is. I think it just means it's the third day of the week. Like, it just means it's Tuesday. (laughs) But there is something deeper there, uh, because you go back to the six-day creation account in Genesis 1, the third day is, is unique from the other six days of creation, because two times on the third day, God does something and says it's good. He separates the land from the sea and says it's good. And he calls the land to produce vegetation, and he says, that's good. So the third day in creation gets a double blessing. And in the minds of many Jewish people at this time, Tuesday, the third day of the week, was the day of double blessing. And so this led to a practice of people getting married on this day. So what that means is that our story probably takes place on the first day of this wedding feast. That's important. John goes on, he says, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And we should stop there just to note that Jesus was invited. They wanted him there. They didn't seem to think that he would kill the party. Um, imagine if, you know, what was, the, what was the last party that you were at? Was it New Year's Eve, maybe? Okay, like, what if Jesus had walked into your New Year's Eve party? Like, would it have killed the vibe for you a little bit? Would it have made you uncomfortable? You think he'd be uncomfortable? Probably not as uncomfortable as you. Jesus is very comfortable being, being around people whose behavior he doesn't approve of. Um, and it's, it's us who are uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus might actually want to be with us. Um, but here's, here's the point. He was invited, and he went. God goes where he's wanted. That's not the sermon, but that's something to note. So here's, here's where the action starts. In verse 3, it says, The wine was gone. Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Now, wine is central to celebration in, in ancient Judaism, and celebration is central to the Jewish spiritual life. And so therefore, wine is central to the Jewish spiritual life. God had commanded them to celebrate in the law. Their whole calendar of the year works around this series of celebrations. We're going to see a lot of them in the book of John. Uh, they were called to celebrate, and wine is always involved with that. Wine is always the biggest part of the celebration. Um, in the Old Testament, wine often symbolizes joy. It often symbolizes this abundant provision of God. And wine is so prevalent here that eventually uh, in the Talmud, which is a collection of rabbinic writings from after this time, in the Talmud, um, it's going to say there's no joy without wine. There is no joy without wine. And so this is one part of the problem, is that the joy is running out of the party very, very quickly. Um, But there's a second part of this problem. 
because that, that really affects everybody there. But the second dimension affects a few people in particular, and that is that it was the groom's responsibility and his family's responsibility to throw this wedding, right? Because they are the ones who are acquiring a new contributor, and so they're the ones who are going to fork over the money for the wedding so that everything can be reciprocal and commensurate and even. Um, and so if the groom and his family fail to provide enough wine for this feast, that's a huge insult to the bride, a huge insult to her family, um, and more so, um, you know, eating and drinking together at this time is this, is this very value-laden thing, uh, where to eat with somebody is a sign of great fellowship and intimacy and connection, and to refuse to eat with somebody is a sign of rejection. And so to not provide enough wine is this act of sort of, of uh, rejection. It's extremely disrespectful. It's so disrespectful, and it's so um, like shaming of the other person in this honor-shame uh, culture that in some situations, it, the, the groom could be taken to court and sued in court for not providing enough wine and because of the insult that this is. Um, and so all of this then means that this is like a huge, huge social disgrace. And this is something that will mark this groom and his bride and their marriage for life. That's what one commentator says. He says, in the close-knit communities of Jesus' day, such an error would never be forgotten and would haunt the newly married couple their entire lives, living their whole lives in this very, very small community where what everyone remembers about your wedding day and what everyone thinks of when they see you walking down the street is this moment of catastrophic failure and embarrassment. And so those are the stakes when Mary comes to Jesus and says, there's no more wine. The stakes are, the joy has run out and shame is knocking at the door. And what Mary asked Jesus to do um, is implicitly is to step in as the groom. She's asking him to assume the groom's responsibilities to provide this wine, and his response to her is interesting. In verse 4, he says, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So when he says, why do you involve me? One way to translate it might be, why are you telling me this? That's the way they render it in the, in the chosen, which is pretty good. Why are you telling me this? Or like, what, what are we supposed to do about it? You know, like this, the whole town is here. It's a huge party. They're out of want. Like, what are we supposed to do? And the way he addresses her is interesting. He calls her woman. Um, if you have older translations of the, of the NIV, for example, some translations will try and soften this. They'll put like a deer on there, dear woman. Um, he's not being very disrespectful, and it's not necessarily harsh, but it is sort of curt, because um, he's not calling her mom, right? He's not calling her Ema. He's calling her woman. So it's, it's not disrespectful exactly, but it is detached when you consider that he's talking to his own mother. Um, and so why is Jesus distancing himself from his mother here? You know what's really interesting is every time Mary is mentioned in the Gospels, during the time of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is distancing himself. Um, and so, you know, they're saying like, okay, your mother and brothers are outside. And he's like, who are my mother and brothers? Like, Whoever does the will of my father, they're my, my mother and brother and sister. Um, what's happening here is that, I think, uh, is that Mary wants to come to Jesus on the inside track. 
She wants to leverage uh, the closeness of her relationship. She wants to leverage her position um, to access Jesus. And I think that's what Jesus is throwing up a speed bump about. And you see him do it with his disciples too, right? Like Peter tries to pull him aside and tell him that he shouldn't go to the cross. Like as though he is like, oh, well, Jesus, let's have a sidebar so that you and I can talk, um, you know, because I'm really the confidant here. And you shouldn't go to the cross. And that's when Jesus calls him Satan, and so it's, you know, you, you're a stumbling block to me. Or like when James and John come to him and they say, can we sit at your, at your right hand in the kingdom? He has to teach his disciples lessons that, that God does not show favoritism and that position or status or anything like that, none of that gets somebody an inside edge or an inside track or some sort of, you know, more exclusive access to God. Maybe that's what's going on. But what we see is that Mary enters this conversation, this moment with the posture of a mother and then she leaves it with the posture of a believer. So she comes in, they have no more wine. How does Mary know that they have no more wine? I mean, that is interesting. No one else seems to know. Maybe they're a family friend or something, but Mary's concerned. She knows what this means, and so she, she knows that Jesus has something going on, that he can do something about this. And so she comes to him as a mother, but she leaves as a believer. She simply just says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, full, full trust. And so what Jesus says to her though, is that my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Hour is really important here. It's a repeated concept in John. Every time Jesus is talking about his hour in the gospel of John, he's talking about the moment of his death. And so you see this in, in multiple places. Chapter 7 and 8, you see that there are crowds that are trying to get to Jesus to take him, and they can't get him because it says his hour had not yet come. In chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says to somebody, the hour has come, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then a couple of verses later says, uh, my soul was troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. And then in chapter 17, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, it says he looked toward the heavens and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Jesus talks about this hour of his death all the time in the Gospel of John, and when he talks about it, he talks about it as the moment that he would be most glorified. Interesting. Keep that in the back of your mind. Mary's asking him about the wine from her human point of view, but Jesus is thinking beyond that. In his mind, if he reveals his glory now, he's letting something out of the, out of the bottle that will not be put back in. If he reveals his glory now, he knows that there is a clock that will start ticking in Cana that is counting down and will reach zero at Calvary. And if he reveals his glory now, his entire life will change and his mother's life is going to change along with it. So that's what's in Jesus' mind when he, uh, when he receives uh, his mother. And, but what does the lack of wine have to do with his death? Why is he thinking about his death? I mean, it seems like a bit of a non sequitur. So let's keep digging. And look at verse 6. This is a major key. Verses 6 and 7. Nearby stood these six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus said to the servants, fill them with water. And so they filled them to the brim. It's hard to, under, to understate the, or, or sorry, to overstate. Very easy to understate. It's hard to overstate the importance of ritual hand washing 
uh, for Jews living in Judea and Galilee during this period. The way this works is that in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament, the the washing is prescribed for certain things. Like if you come into contact with a corpse or if you've been around somebody's disease or or you've been sick or you've come into contact with like somebody's bodily fluids, then what happens is you are considered ritually unclean and you have to perform some washing so that you can restore yourself to ritual cleanness. But here's what you need to understand about ritual cleanness and ritual washing in the Torah. In the Torah... Ritual cleanness is not seen as a moral issue. It's value neutral. Ritual uncleanness doesn't mean guilt. It means ritual uncleanness. The washing was not for any moral purpose. I mean, becoming ceremonially unclean was just a normal part of being human. Um, And so the washing was just this normal way uh, to deal with that issue. And so it only had to happen for very specific reasons and uh, except for the priests who had to wash any time that they entered the temple. I have some pictures. Uh, the first picture here is of what's called a mikvah. This is the bath that you perform ritual washings in. You could do ritual washings two ways. You could fully immerse or you could wash your hands. And so this is a mikvah. But by the time of Jesus, ritual washing has begun to be loaded with a moral value. Um, it had become moralized. It had become a guilt management system for them. The religious leadership and then the people, by the time of Jesus, are investing a lot of spiritual confidence in ritual handwashing and in a way far beyond what was laid out in the Torah. So by the time of Jesus and John the Baptist, you get this. Let's look at the next picture. This is the south wall of the temple in Jerusalem. And this entire complex at the bottom is filled with mikvot with these washing baths so that people can come and do the full washing before they go into the temple. Now, they didn't always have to do that. The priests had to do that. But by this time, these purity, uh, purity standards that apply to the priests are now being adopted by the people at the encouragement of the religious leadership. And it becomes almost superstitious for them. So, like, recall that at one point in time, the, you know, the disciples of John the Baptist questioned Jesus about why his disciples don't do all the extra washings. Um, and so what we see is just that the frequency of washing, the requirement for washings, it all gets escalated beyond uh, what the Torah prescribed. And part of the deal with this washing is that the water has to be living water. It has to be living water. So you only get living water from rain, right, or from a spring or from a river or some sort of flowing water. It had to be living water. It couldn't be um, contaminated by human touch. And so they believed you couldn't just come over to the mikvah with like a, a bucket or a leather bag or something and scoop up some water and take it home to have the washing water at home with you. But they believed that there was a material that was impervious that could keep the water, you know, clean and separate from human contamination, and that is stone. And so what happens is that there is a, there grows up a cottage industry of the production of these stone water jars. Let's look at the next picture. This is from Magdala. And you can see these stone jars, different sizes, but these were being produced in Jerusalem for people to take and to fill with the living water so that they could do the ritual hand washing in their homes. And what Jesus is doing by 
utilizing these jars. He's not just improvising. He's not just going with what's sitting right there. Um, he's saying, look, the time for ritual purification is over. The time for guilt management systems is over. The time for excluding people from involvement on pious pretenses is over. Ritual washing cannot help you. You need something only I can provide. Let's keep looking. Because now he's done the miracle, and now we're going to see what happens when people begin to realize. He told them, verse 8, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. Now, it's so interesting. It just, it just mentions he doesn't realize where it came from. I mean, it's just, it's just to point out the dramatic irony that he doesn't know that Jesus has turned this into wine, but it really makes you think. I mean, if this master of ceremonies is, um, is a Jewish person, if he's been expecting a Messiah, if he has this kind of belief, right now in this moment, um, we're going to see the master of the banquet is thrilled because the wine is so good. But think of how much more thrilled he would be if he knew where the wine came from. Very, very often in our lives, we can become very enamored with a thing, and it can make us very, very happy, and it can make us thrilled and joyful. But we also have to look behind the thing. Where did the thing come from? To connect with joy that way, because it comes from God. Now, the master of the ceremony, the master of the banquet is going to call the groom because the groom had this responsibility. It was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide the wine. And so when the good wine comes out, the master of the banquet says, we got to call the groom over here. He says to the groom, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you saved the best till now. What we see is that the wine that they brought out to begin with was the best they had. It was the best they had, but it doesn't compare to what Jesus provides. The wine that he provides is so much better. The quality of it is so much more uh, that it makes the best wine that they had to offer taste like the cheap stuff. Now, at this point, what all has Jesus done in this story? What all has taken place? First of all, God, Jesus has revealed God to be a God of like hilariously extravagant grace. Here's how, here's how hilarious, okay? It says these jars hold 20 to 30 gallons. You want to do some math? Let's go with the low side. Let's say six stone jars at 20 gallons, that's 120 gallons. 120 gallons is 600 of these. 600 of these. But here's what you need to know about wine. They had three types of wine that they drank at this time. Uh, One was just boiled wine that had been boiled to stop the process of fermentation at a very early stage. One was what they called new wine, which was made with the grapes from the most recent harvest, so it was very early in its fermentation stage, and it would be very sweet. Um, So you see Jesus talk about new wine, and at Pentecost, they think that, that Peter and the apostles are drunk on new wine. But there's a third type of wine. The most common type of wine is the Greek word oinos or winos, which is where we get our word wine. And this wine was strong, and they um, regularly diluted it with three parts water. And so if what Jesus has made in these jars is 
like the wine concentrate that has to be diluted, then we're not talking about 120 gallons. We're talking about 480 gallons, which would be 2,400 of these, which would be more than 12,000 servings of wine. It's enough wine to fill a six-person hot tub. And so, look, like to call the quantity of the wine abundant is like, it is such an understatement. It's, the wine is abundant to the point of absurdity. Like it's just, it's ludicrous. It's a preposterous amount of wine. And not only is it such as just a wild, so excessive amount, it's the best wine. And so the wine is, is abundant and preposterous in both its, its quantity and in its quality. And Jesus pours 12,000 cups of wine for people who are already drunk. And in fact, they're already too drunk to even appreciate what he's giving them. Interesting. He doesn't scold the drunk people. He doesn't turn the water into like coffee or Gatorade to sober them up at all. He just gives them more wine, but not more of the same. He gives them like the true and the better version of the thing that they think they want. And he gives it to them in this hilariously excessive way. And that is a picture of grace. And what about the groom though? Because when we started the story, the groom was looking at a lifetime of shame in this small community and a horrifying start to his marriage. And what does he get instead? He doesn't get shamed. But not only does he not get delivered from, or not only does he get delivered from shame, but he receives honor, right? The master of the feast praises the groom for the extravagance of providing this choice wine, but the groom didn't provide the choice wine. The groom provided the wine that ran out. Like all the groom did was screw up. And yet he gets all the credit for stuff that Jesus did all by himself, right? That is you and me. That is you and me. We could never do enough. Our very best falls short. We have good reason, all of us, to be ashamed, if we're willing to be honest. Um, and yet, instead of the shame we deserve, God gives grace and honor. He withholds nothing good for us because he's given us the credit for what Jesus did all by himself. That, too, is a picture of grace. But those aren't the fullness of the sign. Remember, John says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, why did the disciples believe? Not because they'd seen the miracle. The servants saw the miracle. It says the servants knew what happened with the wine. It doesn't say the servants believed. It says the disciples believed. The disciples saw more than the miracle. The disciples saw the sign. So what's the sign? What does this story mean? What is it pointing to? It's pointing into the past at something that's pointing even further into the future. Long before Jesus, 
uh, about 500 years before, when many, many Jews were living in exile in Babylon, the people began to wonder uh, if God had finally had enough of their sin and had finally rejected them and abandoned them forever. And the Hebrew prophets told of a day when heaven would come to earth, when God would come to live with his people. And I'm just going to read four examples from the book of Isaiah. And I just want you to notice the imagery. Pay attention to how he chooses to paint this picture of God coming uh, to earth to live with human beings. This is Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Isaiah 54, do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Isaiah 61, I greatly delight in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In Isaiah 62, if you read the lectionary um, and follow the lectionary readings, you know, that the, the way that the Roman Catholic Church does or the way that, that some high church traditions do, like use the Book of Common Prayer, this, this uh, passage from Isaiah 62 is always linked with John 2 in those readings. Here's Isaiah 62. No longer will they call you abandoned or your name desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land will be called Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. The sign is pointing backward to a prophecy that is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. In Christ, God is making good on these promises that he made to Israel and then to the world through them. God will not abandon us, God's patience has, not, patience has not run out. His goodness and mercy are never going to stop coming in our direction. And he's inviting us into a relationship with him that is so intimate and personal and so close that the only human category that even comes close to capturing it is ancient Jewish marriage. And how do we see this happen in the life of Christ? Look at the shape of his earthly life and notice that he's constantly referring to himself as the bridegroom. What does Jesus do? He betroths himself to us. He pays the price to marry us. Uh, at, at the cross, he pays the price for the right to marry us with his own blood. And then he goes to prepare a place for us where we will live for him, uh, with him forever. That's what he said, right? In my father's house, there are many rooms. Believe me when I tell you I go to prepare a place for you. And so we're betrothed, we're legally and truly married, waiting for our groom to come and consummate this marriage. Um, John the Baptist is going to talk about this in, in a couple chapters. They come to him and they say, John, all your disciples are leaving to follow Jesus. And he says, hey, the bride's for the bridegroom. The bride's for the bridegroom. I'm not the groom. I'm the friend of the groom with my ear pressed up against the door, waiting to hear the groom's voice for him to tell me it's, all, it's done. It's time to celebrate now. The relationship has been fully 
consummated. We're waiting for that. We are waiting for this day when Jesus will return to, uh, to return us and bring us to, to total union and to total connection and total embrace. And when he does, uh, the book of Revelation, also written by John, tells us that the first event of the age to come is the wedding feast of the Lamb. And in Revelation 19 through 21, we see God's people dressed in white clothes of righteousness, arrayed in splendor, made beautiful and perfect by him, and prepared like a bride for her husband. The whole thing is a wedding. The whole thing is a wedding. When Jesus walked among us, he didn't do what we uh, want him to do or what we expect him to do, right? He didn't come in and draw a line down the middle of the world and say, these are the good people who are right and these are the bad people who are wrong. He doesn't say, these are the honorable people and these are the shameful people. What he does is he steps into our world and he draws a circle around himself. And he says, everyone outside of this circle is broken. Everyone outside of this circle has good reason to be ashamed. Everyone outside of this circle is as good as dead, spiritually speaking. And the only solution is you have to marry me. Christianity is not about what you believe or what you know. Salvation is not about what you believe or what you know. What you believe and what you know uh, cannot save you. But who you believe and who you know can. And that is the point of this story. Jesus reveals God to be a personal God who knows you and who longs to be known by you and wants you and will erase your shame and will take the empty stone water jars of whatever guilt management system you actually have your trust in, and from his own fullness, he will fill them to overflowing with, with the choice wine of the new creation. Look at, John's gospel is really the gospel of fullness. Just, just listen to these. John chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. He said, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That is the the offer on the table. And so take it. (laughs) Marry him. And drink his wine. Don't settle for like the water of guilt management and the cheap wine of your own production and performance. Like if the joy is running out in your life and shame is knocking at the door, then come to Jesus and drink his wine and drink glass after glass after glass after glass after glass of his grace until you're bleary-eyed and slurring your words and falling off the bar stool. And then when you manage to climb back up on the bar stool, look behind the bar and see that he has 10,000 more already poured. I'm gonna dismiss our communion service to prepare to serve us. And as they do, let's do this. Just take a few moments and I want you to identify what, what would your statement of need be? Put yourself in, in the groom's position. 
in Mary's position, if you come to Jesus and you said, Jesus, there's no more blank, what goes in that blank? What is, what's the emptiness that threatens to bring shame into your life? What, what's the emptiness where joy used to be? Go ahead and close your eyes. Well, I guess you can't do that because they're about to serve you communion, so you have to have your eyes open for that. All right, leave your eyes open. But identify this point of need. What is it? Jesus, there's no more money. There's no more peace. Jesus, there's no more hope. There's no more time. There's no more forgiveness. There's no more love in this marriage. Identify that point of need and just bring it to him and tell him, Jesus, there's no more. And trust that he'll fill it. Let's just have some quiet moments and then we'll take communion together. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Thank you.